president of the Teamsters Union, Jimmy Hoffa commanded a workforce larger than the United States Army. July 30th, 1975. Jimmy Hoffa headed for a rendezvous with two Teamster officials, Anthony Giacalone and Tony Provenzano, a former ally with whom Hoffa had had a fist fight in prison. At 2 p.m., Hoffa arrived at the Maccus Red Fox restaurant. After waiting half an hour, he entered the restaurant and telephoned his wife to check whether Giacalone had called. Josephine Hoffa has not seen her husband since. Podcast where we do deep dives in histories, assassinations, affairs, crimes, coups, conspiracies, cover-ups, terrors, and trials. We talk about the bad men who secretly make their history and the history that made them. Mm. I'm your co-host, Isaac. And I'm your co-host, Peter. Co-executive vice president. So today's episode, we are talking as an introduction to a new series we're doing on Mr. James Riddle Hoffa. Mm. Former president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Once and perhaps still a name to conjure with. Yeah. So to set the scene for you listeners, on July 30th, 1975, a hot summer day in the Detroit area, James Riddle Hoffa, his middle name was really Riddle, former president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, international because Canada's in there too, disappeared, never to be seen again officially being declared dead in 1982, the body having never been found. But on that day, Hoffa, gray-haired, suited out in a polo and some slacks, had been lured to wait outside the upscale Moccas Red Fox restaurant in suburban Detroit on the promise of a bury the hatchet peace meeting with Anthony Provenzano, the murderous and feared leader of his own personal fiefdom, New Jersey Teamsters Local 560. And in addition to being union boss, a capo regime, and is a mafia captain in the Genovese crime family. This peace meeting obviously never happened. And while it's often said Hoffa disappeared, we're going to use the phrase Hoffa's kidnapping and murdering mm. and Hoffa's abduction and murder because that doesn't bullshit. Mm. So Hoppe's kidnapping and murder was the finishing blow in a years-long uh, paramilitary campaign of shootings, arson, and bombings by anti-Hoffa, government-protected uh, factions in the Teamsters who were employing anti-Hoffa thugs and mafia soldiers to prevent Hoffa from coming back to power. He, at the time, had, had a shocking amount, uh, considering his own corruption, of rank-and-file Teamster support in his campaign to take back local 299, his own personal local in Detroit. And by take back, you mean become the leader of. Right, get elected. He elected the leader. Yes. Either himself or through a, a kind of hand-picked proxy to take mm -hmm. back mm -hmm. that local. And then from there, he hoped to get once again the international presidency, the general president's position in the Teamsters, the largest and most powerful union at that time in the United States, the center of global capitalism. Mm -hmm. right? So 
for years, Hoffa kind of loomed large over a, a fear-ridden and bipartisan group of senators, uh, prosecutors like Robert F. Kennedy, senators like McClellan, and uh, employers as a their term, an enemy within the country, not because of his very real corruption and mob connections, but because the Teamsters under Hoffa went from unionizing truck drivers and warehousemen and expanded into every crevice of the post-war transportation and distribution system in the United States, allowing them to shut down the country effectively. Mm. And that gave the Teamsters and specifically Hoffa an immense and growing hold over the country's economy. And Hoffa was willing to use strikes. He was willing to use violence mm. to get at this goal. Yeah. If you ever want to know, do you ever say to yourself, like you sometimes hear on social media, why don't Americans do the things that say the French do when the French government threatens unions, when the French government uh, threatens to raise the retirement age? so on and so forth. That question, you can arguably answer it with another question, where's where's Hoffa? <laughs> because Hoffa was the guy who, if, if the labor movement had taken after him, whatever else you would want to say about it in the subsequent 50 years, you might have a very different situation in terms of what Americans were willing and able to do in response to government assaults on the rights of workers. Yeah, and, and actually one of the fun aspects uh, and that we'll talk more about as we go on the series and in this episode is the amount of, like, specialized goons, mm. like on a Warhammer 40k level of specialization <laughs> uh, they, that were, were put onto the Teamsters organizing rosters mm. so as to do these organizing campaigns, especially in places uh, where, as Hoffa turns them, hillbilly employers mm. in the South. Uh, decided to resist campaign. So mm. this is this is going to be a series about the gunsels, the torches, mm. the wiremen. Mm -hmm. All the all the all the fun critters. All of these things. All the Pokemons. Uh but to be clear, we're we're gonna talk about uh Hoffa warts and all the, the corruption, the deals with mafia figures basically being gifted off their own fiefdoms within the Teamster mm -hmm. Empire. Uh but Hoffa had tremendous loyalty in the Union for a reason, particularly among truck drivers. And that's a, a very important part of the story. Truck driving is a hard mm -hmm. fucking lonely job. Mm -hmm. We're not even gonna describe it in detail, but Hoffa was the first and in, in some ways, the, 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 the last person to really negotiate a big benefit through something called the National Master Freight Agreement, as he would call it. Uh, a national union agreement in which every single worker with drove a truck was covered in their rights described. And if they had a complaint, they could go to a shop steward. It, their wages were lifted dramatically under Hoffa. They got huge pay rises and standardized conditions. And this even went into physically reshaping like the truck that they drove and the workplace that they had to be in even while being exploited, uh, Hoffa fought for and got them power steering in the truck, which you can imagine mm. as you're an aging, older truck driver, how that would with feel. With a big damn truck. How that would feel to be able to, to turn it mm. with power rather than physically having yeah, to move the wheels. Yeah. Yeah. 
uh, air conditioning in the cabs, which is still literally something the Teamsters are fighting over today. Oh, yeah. The UPS negotiations going on right now, a large part of the negotiation is getting sufficient air conditioning. In I'm the pretty truck. sure Amazon trucks don't have that. Same thing. Yeah. So often negotiated and, and really leveraged power. And we'll talk about all of the different techniques besides the guns, things like secondary boycotts, mm -hmm. truck blockades. He used every tactic in the book to extract these concessions on a practically like Napoleonic quest to get mm. every single worker in the country and Canada Ooh. under the banner of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters. Uh, so this, with this episode, listeners, we thought we'd talk about the Hoffa kidnapping and murder, uh, the myths and why the Hoffa's kidnapping and murder matters because why there's so many rumors of where he's buried, why every couple of years the FBI is like pulled out like the Keystone cops to go like dig up some driveway or a yeah. junkyard. But like Charlie Brown with Lucy and the football, mm. they always seem to go up. Well, looks like Hoffa's not here. Yeah. Yeah. And why he was, you know, I, I wasn't kidding. When I said he was a name to conjure with. I mean, he was dead for a long time yeah. by the time I was at all conscious of anything around me. And I still remember hearing his name pretty routinely. I remember asking uh, my parents who he was, and it seemed like a non, a non sequitur when they responded. He was a labor leader. You know, I didn't know my, you know, I was a child in the 90s. So and a child of people who were not in unions. Uh, in non-unionized professions. So I didn't know much about labor unions, but it seemed right. uh, it, it seemed to come from both this other world almost of the relatively recent past, but also was name checked all the time, like a source of like urban legends. Is Hoffa here? Is Hoffa there? Is Hoffa dead? Is Hoffa alive? I remember the ads for the Hoffa movie directed by Danny DeVito and starring Jack Nicholson, yeah. who is this guy. He appears to have been a grown-up involved in some uh, very grown-up activities, as far as my child self could tell. I rem uh, you know, I was a big watcher, and you know, makes sense given my name of Pete and Pete, the <laughs> classic Nickelodeon. I would say one of the great examples of American magical realism, honestly. Totally. Um, and uh, I, re I remember the episode where little Pete, the more adventurous Pete, uh, is tunneling. He's, uh, I don't remember why. He had a reason. He was grounded. Oh, he was grounded. Yeah, he was yeah, trying yeah. to escape kind of great escape style. You know, he's just digging around and he comes across a wallet and he, he looks in the wallet and he says, the, I, I guess he's reading off the idea, says, oh, Hoffa, hmm. And then, you know, uh, so yeah, the, and that was a show for children. Now it was yeah. in the period of Nickelodeon, I think. They, they even have uh, like a a like like a fake Jimmy Hoffa like figure on The Simpsons uh, in Springfield Stadium. Oh wow! Yeah, like yeah, harkening like, back to like how like the rumor that Hoffa was buried in Giant Stadium. Yeah, yeah, I do or think the Renaissance yeah. on Clayton Center. I do think that this was a period when Nickelodeon assumed that it was being watched on a single family a, a tv that was the only tv for the family and so threw in some jokes for adults but yeah it, it was it was around and why right why this guy why was you know just uh, if all he was was just some crooked labor leader um then why would his name continue to kind of ring down the ages so to speak yeah and it's 
it's a hard to disentangle like cultural question. Mm. One thing that struck strikes me about this and which I hope to do our little like tiny part to to maybe change a little bit is is compared to kind of the hallmark assassin you know obsessed over assassinations of the 1960s the the Hoffa abduction murder is treated like a joke mm. right like it it's in its highest seriousness like the highest level of like highest register they'll give it it's like a, a live by the sword story yeah right um and it goes it goes a little bit like this like this is the standard Hoffa story uh, a corrupt, greed-bloated, conservative business unionist. He cut deals with the mafia, or at least with many gangsters, to facilitate his rise to the top, where he extorted honest businessmen until the mafia got a better deal and decided to whack him. Mm. And I have to say that when when I was a child, like the, when people talked about the Hoffa stuff, I assumed, because of the way they talked about it, that Hoffa was like a gangster. Right. Yeah, I didn't assume that he was a union leader or something yeah. like that. And in in this kind of version of the story, whatever kind of spoiled contributions to the labor movement he had, it it's you know, God is just desserts in the end because mm -hmm. you reap what you sow. And probably the the biggest encapsulation of this is by Dan Moldea, who is routinely still brought on as kind of the authority on on where Jimmy Hoffa mm -hmm. is and. And who he was. And, and who is he? So Dan Moldea was a journalist, investigative journalist and writer. And he wrote a book in the 70s called The Hoffa Wars, mm. which still gets cited a fair bit, even though a lot of the sourcing is a little mm. iffy. And I know he did some some real field journalism in mm -hmm. this. Um, and we'll reference some of Dan Moldea's stuff in these episodes. But it's it's not the final word on anything, particularly when he starts to speculate about how Jimmy Hoffa had a hand in the JFK assassination. Mm -hmm. But he starts out the book by saying, Jimmy, just in completely dismissive way, Jimmy Hoffa's most valuable contribution to the American labor movement came at the moment he stopped breathing on July 30th, 1975. Mm -hmm. He could have added that son of a bitch. Um, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's interesting in that it some of the register around it including the way it becomes this urban legend that get or or generates urban legends around it it's not too dissimilar to other murders and and deaths around the 60s to 70s yeah in that they were highly political the the people these people who died or were assassinated were highly political actors but they get abstracted in certain ways out of their political context yeah. and become uh, these these almost fairy tale like stories, like JFK, the Good Prince that America snuffed out. Uh, you know, the darkness of America uh, came, regardless of what it was. You know, Oswald did or didn't believe, or whether Oswald did it or not. And then, of course, the, the flip side of that. Uh, you know, the conspiracy theory versions that, that you see. And you see this with a number of a number of these 60s deaths, I think, right? Malcolm X, he was just, you know, he was a or, or king, right? They yeah. were they were just truth tellers. They were just guys who told the truth. And that bothered people badly enough that they were eventually killed. Uh, which I mean, you could say there's some truth to that, huh? But um obviously there was a, a broader political context. People, there was a logistics to it, among other things. There was an economy yeah. to what happened to them and what happened to Hoffa and what happened even to nonviolent deaths 
you know, your rock star deaths or what have you, that we abstract away. Yeah, and what we lose in that abstraction is that the the greater importance is not like individually who these people are mm -hmm. than what they were doing as a leader and who like what like constellation of forces, whether it's unions, whether it's a popular movement or whatever, was behind them and thereby like was set back by their death. Yes. Right. And particularly with, with Hoffa's death, and I think this is if anything more important now as we enter in what might very well be like the summer of strikes, right. Teamsters themselves negotiating on the UPS contract and all that stuff. With Hoffa, what's important is what did his death prevent him and and others who were supporting him from doing? Because mm. that's why he died. Right. Uh, among other things, um, it, part of the legacy seems to me, uh, it gets, it, it especially falls between two chairs, right, in terms of who could come forward and tell a different story or tell a more contextualized story. Because the right doesn't particularly like Jimmy Hoffa because he was a labor leader. The left doesn't particularly doesn't particularly like Jimmy Hoffa because they see him at more or less like Moldea does. Yeah. Right. When I started getting involved in organizing, uh, you know, people didn't talk about Hoffa all the time, but the clear they, nobody thought he was a good guy. Right. Uh, when if his name came up, it was not a positive. Right. Uh, with with leftists, including people, you know that you you can't use the usual get out. Oh, they're just you know PMC cultural leftists. No, the, many of these people were working class organizers in labor themselves. Yeah, uh, and, and, for one and reason to be clear, like I, I don't think we're going to be arguing here. Like, huh? Actually, Papa was good. Yes, because. What this is a story about isn't a question of like whether this person was particularly like personally good or right. or moral or or had a great moral worldview, right? But rather like what agreements did they make? Like what alliances were they building? Right. And what was that going towards when he was snuffed out? Yes, we're not we're not trying to uh, either praise or assassinate his character. We're trying to we're we're about understanding. Yeah. Uh, in, in fact, I, I would say I was actually partly inspired to start researching this stuff because uh, ha in addition to all of these things, like from The Simpsons to any other cultural reference point, I noticed that Hoffa's ghost was kind of coming back recently. Uh, Jacobin put out a conspiracy uh, related issue, uh, Jacobin Magazine, where they, they list off all of the many locations where Jimmy Hoffa was alleged to be buried or disposed of, like whether it's being fled to gators in the, in the Everglades or buried under Giant Stadium or Incinerator. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Donald Hughes in the same issue uh, joked, uh, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared in 1975, almost exactly as neoliberalism began to take hold as a global regime of capital. What did Hoffa know? Was he trying to stop it? I'll use the tools of digital humanities to sift through his public statements for evidence that the CIA wanted to shut him up before they placed Reagan in power. Hmm. Um, I thought that was an especially funny one because, in fact, uh, it's funny uh, because it's true. There, there's this weird note of truth to it in yeah. that Hoffa's death does occur precisely at this point where particularly in the United States, capital needed to be free of a, of a mm. real chokehold mm -hmm. on transportation. 
Yeah. The lifeblood of, of this expanding neoliberal global economy. Right. Even if you're going to shift away from manufacturing and towards, you know, services and information technology, you still need the trucks. And, and that's the thing is it's the economy is more dependent on that choke point yeah. than ever and more mm-hmm. vulnerable to workers restricting their labor and doing mm-hmm. blockades and things than ever. We've we really learned during COVID when stuff doesn't arrive, the goodies don't come yeah. unless the trucks are running. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's true with trucks. It's true with ports. That's mm. true with airplanes, all of which the team series moved into or built alliances mm-hmm. uh, to cement the ability to strike in those during Hoffa. There's also been this kind of, I frankly like kind of like ghoulish attempt by conservatives, mm. not as much like very recently since they decided they just hate unions. Right. Um, they're never going to like them. But there was an attempt for a while to kind of claim Hoffa for conservatives because I mean, Hoffa would publicly support Republican candidates mm-hmm. at times. I, found that he didn't he basically would like refuse to like hit, hitch his wagon on right. a particular party but he was he was personally like he'd been raised on Horatio Alger books mm. and things like that but the thing that they liked most about Hoffa was that he said I don't have a political agenda I'm mm. just fighting for my workers I'm yeah. trying to get the highest price for their labor and I'm selling right. it at the highest price yeah they love that aspect and mm-hmm. They, they even loved how um, they'll make claims, and Thaddeus Russell is really big on that, mm-hmm. about how Hoffa didn't rely on, you know, the regime of labor law. He relied on action from yeah. his workers. Mm-hmm. Which, he didn't go to the government. Yeah, which is, like, not really true. We'll talk a lot about that in the uh, in the first episode of our series here on all of the, the tactics and the violence that was used. Yeah, Thaddeus Russell as kind of a, uh, an, a, a, a someone who attempts to be a Pied Piper away from the left by playing vaguely leftish tunes, like, oh, I love this union leader who, who committed to action rather than the government, or his book, Renegade History of the United States, where he says, oh, I love pleasure, I love freedom, libertarianism, et cetera, et cetera, uh, would be pretty a pretty sinister figure. If he also weren't uh, terribly incompetent, uh, just a, a very bad writer and historian, and he got, you know, eventually either got kicked out or left the academy and is now, uh, you know, presumably taking Peter Thiel's money to do a minor intellectual dark web podcast, but uh, possibly one of the worst historians. I mean, definitely one of the worst supposedly professional historians I've ever read, possibly the worst, just in terms of the quality of his work. Yeah, there are times when Thaddeus Russell will have like dug out an interesting fact because he, at the time he was working on this, he was kind of the only person like really examining Hoffa Mm -hmm. in any detail and examining the IBT in any detail. But much of his book is just full of just wrongly interpreted nonsense. Right. So the truth is, is that I think much of the Hoffa legacy and why like a lot of radicals, uh, you know, and and comrades who are in the Teamsters today, like look very poorly on the Hoffa legacy uh, is because it's viewed through the kind of the muddy lens of his handpicked successor, Frank Fitzsimmons and his regime, and that of his son, Jimmy Jr. Mm -hmm. He's a dance boy. 
<laughs> Sorry, you can cut that if you want. I'm not. Okay. Um, James Hoffa Jr., of course, trained as a lawyer, took up the mantle like well, well after um, you know, Ron Carey and the the TDU had cleared the mafia out of the union. <laughs> and quite unlike his father, really more like the Napoleon the third to his to the Napoleon. Yeah. In this whole uh in this whole equation was not a uh, a guy who used lots of leverage and force mm -hmm. a lot of bluster and nonsense basically. yeah yeah i mean in the napoleon comparison i think is especially apt uh because a lot of leftists also really dislike napoleon and again for good reason uh you could argue that napoleon was the ultimate grave digger of the french revolution but it was he was also the only one who maybe could have at least once you get past a certain point, right? You could say, oh, Danton or somebody could have taken the levy on mass and stormed through Central Europe before the British and the Russians could have stopped him or something. So uh, maybe they could have, maybe they couldn't have. But post Thermidor, and certainly post, uh, I would actually say post Robespierre, after the reign of terror, uh, the only guy who was actually going to put and keep the reactionary anti-revolutionary powers of Europe on the back foot was Napoleon. Yeah. And he came very close to doing it permanently. It, his flaws also led to the downfall of that, or helped lead to the downfall of that project. The idea that he would invade Russia in the winter, et cetera, et cetera, alienating the people of Europe through putting his dumb brothers and cousins on various thrones. Again, very Hoppe-like. Right, very Hoppe-like. But he was also unquestionably one of the you know greatest strategists, tacticians of all time. It's a, a pretty uh, talented uh, ruler up until a point, whether or not one agreed with his agenda. So it's that same kind of ambiguous space, right? It's like a it's like a chimera of of reactionary and radical things. Yeah. Like Napoleon would make everybody equal before the law yeah. in France, and that's pay the Jews, mm -hmm. uh, like standardize all these ways to consolidate all these revolutionary things from the revolution at the same time. Declaring himself emperor, right. creating a whole host of nobility, right. waging endless war. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and very similarly, you have with Hoffa, and I was even surprised to find this, really, a combination of really conservative declarations. I'm just selling my workers mm -hmm. by his price. Uh, I'm not a social unionist like, you know, Walter Ruther. Mm -hmm. Um, we might do some episodes about mm. combined with a really hard-boiled radicalism. And the source for a lot of our, our comments on this is going to be this sadly out-of-print book by Ralph and Estelle James um, Hoffa and the Teamsters Studying Union Power, where they find over and over again, they say Hoffa's worldview on this thing appears to be Marxist. Yeah. Marxist. Marxist. And this isn't a case of like, you know, kind of like with Clarence Thomas, where he started out Marxist and then having having boiled away like all illusions about about mm -hmm. liberalism or capitalism, he just ends up kind of selling out. Oh. It's actually that he has a, a fully apocalyptic worldview mm. about capitalism. him is the fact that Jimmy Hoffa could could say uh, to uh, 400,000 Teamsters or 450,000 Teamsters at the time to park the trucks and they'd park them. If you got it.
Napoleon analogy, Peter, and where you're drawing it to, probably the, the central flaw here with, with Hoffa and the way he ruled and, and is really crucial to understanding how he met his end is that he personalized all of the power mm. in an attempt to take the reins of this kind of holy Roman empire of unions. Yeah. All these really, really uh, jealous, self-ruling Local, some of which are democratic and right. some of which are just like Patchwork of different types of rules arrangements. Yes. And, yeah. In order to take control of that, he centralized power in himself. Mm. And I think Dan Labotz, in, in writing about this, really kind of struck the nail on the head. He says, Well, while he was a popular and charismatic leader, Hoffa was also a union boss, a dictator who tolerated no opposition. He once screamed in open court that he would kill a man who had testified against him. Mm. He crushed local unions that fought for their economy and destroyed rank and file movements that fought against him. He did it, he said, for their own good. Hoffa never helped the Teamster membership to learn to think and act for itself. On the contrary, he imbued the union membership with a sense of dependency. He, Hoffa, took credit and shouldered all the blame. Hoffa organized the union. Hoffa negotiated the contracts. Hoffa settled the grievances. Hoffa took care of the Teamsters until they could no longer take care of themselves. And that was Hoffa's greatest crime, greater than enrichment at the expense of his members, greater than involving the mafia in the union, both of which were terrible evils. Hmm. This is made after acknowledging that like Hoffa came truly from a working class background. He really was militant. It wasn't just bluster. But that critique, I, I think, is is very valid mm. yeah i wonder what his actual is how old was he when he was killed if it was 76 when was he born do you know 69 years okay nice <laughs> uh sorry but um <laughs> but uh yeah he he was nearing the end or at least the 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 home stretch of his natural life so like what was his plan once he was gone if he didn't de uh, develop leadership underneath him yeah, and I mean that's that's the crazy thing, and we'll we'll talk about this as we go on. But he really made a kind of crucial choice when he chose Frank Fitzsimmons, who was known to Hoffa to be completely on the take. I mean, yeah. Hoffa would make deals basically where he would benefit mm -hmm. off of his leadership of the union. Yeah. But he wouldn't directly just steal from right. the, the union the, local. What George Washington Plunkett would have called uh, clean graft Brilliant. as opposed to as opposed to dirty graft. Yeah. Fitzsimmons just didn't do a job. Yeah. And he would just take his money. Right. But Hoffa chose him because he was he was a local 299 guy and he believed he was loyal. And this was after he felt betrayed, and this is crucial, by Harold Gibbons, who was the 
socialist or social democrat leader mm -hmm. of St. Louis's local 699, which Hoffa basically created at gunpoint. Mm -hmm. I don't mean like pointing the gun at workers. I mean, Hoffa sent down toughs from Detroit mm -hmm. to wipe out the mafia people who are trying to take control of that mm -hmm. union and put themselves on the payroll and instead put Harold Gibbons at the top. Harold yeah. Gibbons, a soft-spoken at that time, socialist teacher. Mm -hmm. And he built that into kind of a, a, a model social democratic community union mm -hmm. that forced through the integration of St. Louis mm -hmm. in their schools and, and so on and so on. And Harold Gibbons for a while was supposed to be Hoffa's handpicked successor. They completely fell out after the John F. Kennedy assassination because Harold Gibbons said we should express our condolences. Oh, wow. And he saw that as a sign of disloyalty. Oh, yeah, that's wild. Yeah, I mean, one possibly interesting connection. Uh, the people in my life who do the most organizing with the Teamsters and who are most dedicatedly anti-Hoffa as a, as a dynasty are also uh, Trotskyists. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the many Trotskyists uh, do very good work organizing uh, in labor. And I always got the impression, along with the actual historical misdeeds of Hoffa, Hoffa father and son, they dis disdained Hoffa father for his deviating from the plan, right? That's, that's, that's always a weakness with Trotskyists, if I may give a friendly critique. The Trot most Trotskyists I know think there is a plan they the, many of their splits come down to minor differences in how to interpret the plan and the plan in almost none of the trotskyist you know lineages i know of involve paying off mobsters uh, right. or creating these personal fiefdoms for good reason but it's also worth knowing, and i actually learned this uh from you isaac that one of Hoffa's labor movement mentors, one of the major organizers of the Teamsters before Hoffa, was arguably the greatest American Trotskyist, Farrell Dobbs. Yes. And, and not only that, like this is, if anything, even among people who acknowledge it was un still understated, the relationship between these two, because Hoffa was mentored by Dobbs. He was Dobbs's basically star pupil. Mm -hmm. Farrell Dobbs was a and this is a fair characterization, a con an anti-Soviet communist mm -hmm. who is a Trotskyist. Yeah. And uh, he built and led the uh, 1934, along with a few others like the Dunn brothers and so on, mm -hmm. the 1940, 1934 Minneapolis general strike where Teamsters using trucks blockaded and forced through concessions on all of the trucking companies in that area. But then he went on to build the Central States Driving Council, which was the model for Hoffa for how you could take these just scattered long haul truck drivers working at tiny little companies and unite them into a force that could compel all of these companies at once, all of these business owners, many of whom like were perfectly willing to pay gangsters to kill people. Mm. How you could force all of them to come to the table and say uncle and pay higher wages and pay into pensions and so on. But the thing that surprised me was how even though Dobbs left the Teamsters, his 
his fellow Trotskyists were purged mm. in 1941, often never disavowed Dobbs. And there's a usual way of characterizing this where people say, oh, Hoffa, he believed Dobbs was an organizational genius, but he disavowed him politically. He thought mm. politically he was nuts. Often his own biographies does not disavow Dobbs really at all. He says that, like, I think communist ideas are nuts. He'll do that, like, routine statement. But then he'll go out of his way to say, history may still prove Feral Dobbs right. Yeah, and along with his other talents, uh, Dobbs, also a very talented writer. Uh, I strongly recommend his book, Teamster Power, about the, or is it, uh, sorry, it's, it's, it's a it's tetralogy. Four books, yeah, it's four yeah. books. I've, I've read the first. I plan on reading the others. I believe the first is Teamster Rebellion. Yes, Teamster I strongly Rebellion. recommend reading Teamster Rebellion. It actually, to me, it has almost like a Thucydides Xenophon quality to it of, of classical historical writing. And I'd be curious what others thought of it. The curious thing is, too, is uh, this was a mutual continued admiration. It didn't just go one mm -hmm. way where Hoffa says, Dobbs is a great organizer, but, you know, his ideas are one. Yeah. Dobbs continued to write in defense of Hoffa mm. into the 60s. Wow. About he would, he would write in a review of uh, Ralph and Estelle James's book about how the cases against Hoffa, the criminal cases, largely amounted to an effort by the government to restrain the union movement, mm -hmm. which I think you're going to see listeners appears to be right. Mm -hmm. But the, the thing I find most fascinating with Hoffa is he has a completely like hard boiled class politics mindset. And by hard boiled here, I mean that he sees people for all of their hopes and dreams and desires for themselves and their families especially when we're talking about working class people, they are submerged in a, a sea of desperation and a system that compels them onwards in the interests of cash. And if you don't have money, then you cannot make this thing move. You either have power or money and one gets the other. Mm. And uh, he had a, when I say he had a very apocalyptic view of how, this system would ultimately go. I'd like to read a passage actually from the James book that really shocked me about Hoffa and gave me a different insight into why he did the things he did. And this is also just because of the influence of Dobbs still on his thinking, uh, even until he died. The final result, which Hoffa discusses frequently in private, he, Hoffa, believes few major growth sectors are left, thus in keeping with Marxist ideology, but in contrast to the beliefs of the, the most liberal American trade unionists often use government measures to alleviate unemployment, including monetary or fiscal policy or a legislative cut in the work week as only a temporary palliative, too superficial and ineffective to counter the fundamental instability of our economy. The final result, which often discusses frequently in private conversation, is the radicalization of the American labor force and the flowering of left-wing political movements. Despite its emotional attraction, to a vigorous free enterprise economy, numerous private financial deals, his advocacy of business experience for trade union leaders, support of Republican candidates, Alpha believes that capitalism is doomed, mm -hmm. just as he was taught by Dobbs in the 1930s. He is in the incongruous position of someone who likes the present system but doesn't believe it can work. 
This sense of expectancy helped explain his buoyancy in the face of Kennedy diatribes. For the denouement, the end, will not be long in coming. He feels and he plans sufficient flexibility to go with the winner. Mm. Viewed in this light, Hoffa's alignment with certain radical unions, like the mine mill and smelter workers, and Harry Bridge, Harry Bridges, mm. uh, an actual communist, oh, yeah. international longshoreman and warehouseman in the union, is more than simply, simply a momentary expedient. We have several times heard Hoffa predict a return to the violence in the streets that he witnessed during the Great Depression. Should this happen, he is prepared to lead the hungry masses forth. Mm. His dynamic personality, flowing oratory, brilliant mind, shrewd knowledge of strategy, and relative youth would all combine to make him a logical candidate for radical leadership. Were his pessimistic prognostications about the American economy to prove correct? Mm. In other words, Hoffa said, yeah, I might be a businessman and everything like that, but Capitalism is doomed, and when the bell tolls, I'm going to go ahead and lead the revolution. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's a interesting and I think underexplored portion of the history of the struggle between communism and capitalism, of how many people on both of the sides thought that it was inevitable that the other side would win, and that they weren't going to do uh, fight to the end. Red Dawn, or I suppose if you're a Russian, uh, White Dawn. I used to say um, that they were that they could figure out a way to negotiate that as well. Obviously, we saw what happened with that in Russia, uh, with the actual collapse of the Soviet Union. A lot of the people who came forward to do to take certain degree of power, including some of the oligarchs, future oligarchs, were people who kind of thought the opposite of what Hoffa thought and were right. Yeah, uh, whereas in, in Hoffa's vision, this would be like the mirror image. Yes. You know? I don't think Hoffa was alone. And, when, and with Hoffa, you, the, he would draw a contrast between himself and, say, a, a, a more liberal trading unit like the uh, UAW leaders, like um, Leonard Woodcock or something like yeah. that. Less with Walter Ruther, but to some extent with Walter Ruther himself, and say like, "Oh no, you can't fix this thing. It's doomed. Huh. Huh. It's doomed." My only role is to accumulate as much power for my people, mm. you know, which he would like to be basically the entire working class of the right. United States as possible when all of the shit hits the fan. Anyways. This is probably a, a good a time as any to talk a little bit about the uh, the kind of the more personal sides mm. of Hoffa, um, because this was a very strange and interesting moment. Yeah. I do mean that he was a little like five foot four to five foot six guy. Yeah, he was a he was a short king, um, but he seemed like gigantic to everyone who who talked to him. Mm. He's just like that type of like tiny man who goes into a room. And then just he's able to buttonhole people and make them move around. Um, that's always fascinated me. Even though Jimmy Hoffa was a little man, he had a certain amount of charisma about him. When you shook hands with Jimmy Hoffa, even though Hoffa was a little fella, five foot five or something like that, you thought you were shaking hands with somebody much bigger. Despite the fact that he would like openly make these kind of protestations of being, you know, like a clean conservative, buttoned up, 
guy to avoid any accusations that he might be radical or <laughs> red or anything like that. He was also openly an atheist. Mm. He just much to his wife's dismay, mm. despite the fact that like I I always thought. I always kind of like bought into the notion like Hoffa was this like kind of like I always thought that he was like this like overflowing with sleeves like a drop of the foot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like in I guess like the fat trade unionist or something mm. like that in the stereotype. And it turns out he's this teetotaling, doesn't drink alcohol, doesn't smoke, doesn't drink coffee. Wow. Um, you drink tea. <laughs> Not kidding. That's amazing. Constantly doing push-ups and exercise mm. and uh, a self-improvement guy. Total self-improvement guy and someone who kind of cultivated all of these personal, personalized relationships, I should say, with businessmen, family people, anyone who would walk into his office he would, with like a sob story. He wasn't like, oh, improve yourself. He would just immediately dole yeah. out cash yeah. from his pocket. He's a self-improved guy, not a you improved guy. Yeah. Yeah. He would never like put that responsibility on anyone yeah. else, which is a maybe a little bit on his kid, it seems. Yeah, maybe a little bit on his kid. Chucky, his adopted kid, he got mm. disappointed with after a while because he just kept racking up gambling debts oh, yeah. and running around with strippers, which he paid off several times. Oh yeah. But uh Yeah, let's get into like the the narrative of like like what happened when in order that he wound up the kind of person who was the subject of this paramilitary campaign that ultimately led to his death. Yeah. So what we're going to have to do, listeners, is in order to unpack Hoffa's death, the forces that brought the men there to the Marcus Red Fox that day to abduct and kill him, we're going to have to unpack how Hoffa rose to any kind of power at all in the people and the tactics and the things that they had to do to put him up to that power. And that means talking about Detroit in the 30s and 40s and even going in the 50s uh, in this landscape of really brutal combat, including the tactics that they had to use to organize the South as being the pretty much the only large national union to organize the Jim Crow South in the 1940s and 50s. And then we're going to need to talk about the landscape of the Teamsters as a union mm. in this kind of uh, patchwork, as you said, Peter, of fiefdoms and kind of social democratic model unions like in St. Louis and uh, Ron Carey's local in New York. And then we're going to have to address how Hoffa got sent to prison in mm. <laughs> the double crossing, secret agents, wiretaps, it's a long story. Yeah. And it's a great story. There's a lot of action in this one. Oh, yeah. And uh, if you thought you knew Bobby Kennedy. Think again. Yeah. yeah. I, I come from a Kennedy worshipping house. Well, not all of the household, but uh, oh, I do too. Kennedy admirers. And especially, I would say, Bobby. But yeah, no, he, um, he did some dirt. Not above dirt. So in order to explain how we get to the Marcus Red Fox and solve for you uh the mystery of where jimmy's hoffa body is body is listeners we're gonna have to go back in time first we're gonna have to go back to those depression years the lean years where lines of unemployed starving men were waiting to take jobs in the kroger warehouse mm -hmm. where jimmy hoffa got his start mm. 
And that's where we're, I guess we'll leave it yeah, this time. that's good. Thanks again, listeners. Subscribe to us on Patreon. We are ramping up again, as you can tell. Yeah. Patreon.com slash People's History of Violence. Uh, follow us on Twitter. And see you next time. Bye-bye. Who's named after uh, Farrell is uh, is Farrell, the producer. Really? No, no. God damn it. Um,